You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to episode 19 of our show, where we discuss the latest news about Apple, iPhone, iPad, Mac, and more. We're recording on Thursday, May 28th, 2015. Today, we'll be talking about Mateo PrimeSense. Uh, there was an acquisition by Apple. WWDC predictions, Apple TV, and HomeKit. We have with us this week Apple Insider Senior Editor, El Presidente, Neil Hughes. Hey, how's it going, guys? Shane Cole, leader. I thought I wanted, I was going to be El Presidente. Well, exercise your leadership, dude. Fine. Hola. Jane Cole, El Presidente. Hello. Yeah, that presidential coup is working out well for you. And I'm your host, Victor Marks. So let's start off. Shane, you were talking uh, earlier, you'd written this story about PrimeSense and a recent acquisition of a company called Mateo. Yeah, so Apple bought a company called Mateo, who is uh, right at this moment one of the most well-known, or maybe the most well-known uh, augmented reality companies in the world from the software side. Uh, their technology powers every important AR application right now. Uh, Ikea's virtual catalog that lets you hold your iPad up and see how your couch will look in your living room. Uh, Ferrari's AR sales app, as though the Ferraris themselves aren't cool enough. Uh, Audi's owner's manual, which is an AR owner's manual for one of their higher-end cars. Uh, those are all Mateo things, and Apple bought them for what is presumably a large amount of money. We don't know exactly how much yet, um, but given that it's probably one of the most public acquisitions from Apple in a long time, um, aside from Beats, because Mateo is a well-known firm, uh, it's surely quite a bit. Um, that fits in pretty well with another odd acquisition they made a few years ago in PrimeSense, which is, was an Israeli uh, semiconductor company that made basically hardware that lets computers see in three dimensions. Uh, it lets computers see like we see. And uh, they're most well-known, most publicly known, for making the first generation of Kinect sensors. And anybody who's used an augmented reality app knows that the better your data is, the data about the space around you, the better augmented reality works. Uh, it's no good if you, you know, look through your phone at a street and your phone doesn't know how far down the street the business is trying to show you is. Uh, early versions of Yelp's AR stuff uh, were kind of like that. It didn't work very well. Uh, so I think these two, will, in the future, we're going to see these two acquisitions be really complementary to each other. So, you know, when Apple acquires a, a company in, in the past, they've acquired for for technology. You know, the um, they acquired a keyboard company that became a the the, the touch sensitive technology, the uh, the touch panel in the iPhone. They've acquired a, the mapping company that became part of Apple Maps. The other kind of acquisitions that that they do and other companies will do is is for the talent, and then they'll take the talent and apply them to some other technology. Uh, so my question is: is do we think that this is going to come together as some sort of augmented reality product, or is this a talent acquisition where these people are really talented. Let's put them all together in a room and, and see what they can do to our existing stuff. Well, I think, I think you, uh, you want to go. I was, yeah, I was just going to say, I think when you put the two together, if you took prime sense in and of itself and then Mateo in and of itself, I think you could say that they're both acquires. But if you put the two together, I think it's fairly clear that they're trying to do something with some sort of advanced depth perceiving vision. 
Um, whether that's actually a consumer-facing product is a whole other question entirely, though. Uh, but I think it is. And a lot of this ties into mapping, I think, as well. You could see pretty easily where stuff like augmented reality would be helpful. Uh, you're trying to find a storefront or something like that, um, and you know overlays and those sort of things. Uh, th there's been products out there that have done that kind of thing before. But if we're integrated into a mapping solution, I think that that would be pretty helpful. And it, it kind of reminds me a little bit, too, of a patent that Apple had years ago. It was kind of a... a uh, crowd-sourced uh, street view concept where basically people would take pictures and opt into a service where you know you could take pictures of storefronts and stuff like that and it would integrate into a mapping system so i think you could see some of that stuff could start to tie into mapping as well the prime sense is interesting because that could be consumer facing but if you look at their technology that they've had in the past with uh, microsoft uh, xbox connect and all that it really didn't work for fine controls. You really had to do like broad motions for it to work, which is why Kinect was kind of like a fad that never really stuck around. So whatever technology PrimeSense had, Apple is definitely going to have to improve on on it um, if they were going to do a consumer-facing product because a lot of that stuff that they had put out in the past uh, in their partnerships with other companies was not really not the kind of stuff that I could see Apple doing. Well, there are many other applications for three-dimensional um, sensing other than things like Connect. Um, you mentioned maps, and that's a really important one. But where I see that going, it's not so much Street View, although there's almost certainly some sort of 3D Street View coming. That's a virtual certainty. But uh, something more to do with interior maps. And right. my question about, the, about bridging that gap with augmented reality is, are people really going to hold their phones up in front of them? If, uh, I mean, I guess if it works, right? <laughs> so that's, I think, something that's held wide use of AR down is who wants to stand out in the middle of the street and hold their phone up in front of them, turning around in a circle trying to find the thing they're looking for, you, right? You look like a tool, right? You're, yeah, you're, exactly. It's the same problem that we have with Google Glass and, and you wouldn't wear cardboard or oculus into daily use, well I, I think people look really stupid when they go out in public with an ipad and take hold it up and take pictures and yet plenty oh, yeah. of people do okay. that so i mean oh does it look weird that we're holding a phone up in front of our face well we're already doing that all day anyhow so i, I don't know it does i think if it works if it's responsive and quick it it'll be uh, it'll catch on you know i'm thinking of like what was the name of that one that was out years ago it was called like layer or something and mm -hmm. it would show yeah, you like, points of interest yeah, and it, I haven't used it in years, so maybe it's awesome now. But when it when I first tried out, it, oh, but were they? It, yeah. Well, it was laggy. It didn't work. It was it was kind of like a neato concept, and you're just like, oh, look at what they did. But uh, it didn't really have a practical application. I feel like if something was responsive and valuable, especially for like indoor maps and stuff like that, like if you ever tried to navigate a big mall or something trying to get around those places is a nightmare and so apple has been uh really um acquiring a number of indoor gps and, and location positioning companies for indoor t type of stuff if you think about it like if you're getting directions on the road well you follow streets you know turn here the streets have names if you're inside at a mall or something there's no streets no names or anything like that so getting around can be kind of difficult on foot especially in some of these big shopping centers so I could see where location plus augmented reality uh, kind of stuff would uh, definitely have a benefit. Cool. So we're, we're talking about what we're thinking this could become, and I want to get on to WDC, because as we know, that the Worldwide Developer Conference is coming up, and 
we don't really know what to expect. We, we have a little bit of an idea about what not to expect now, but what are your thoughts about this upcoming event? Well, I uh, wrote a uh, article yesterday kind of giving a summary of what we were expecting at WWDC. And as luck would have it, uh, about an hour after I published that, is, uh, which was this long thing on a new Apple TV and how we're expecting a new Apple TV, uh, that is when uh, New York Times and Recode came out with stories saying, oh, there actually won't be an Apple TV next week. So I look like a big fat idiot after running that story. Great timing on my part. Um, so we will not be seeing an Apple TV next week, but uh, it's already a sure thing. I mean, Apple's already said, basically, that we're going to see iOS 9, we're going to see uh, OS 10.11, um, and presumably we're going to see a new subscription music service. And then beyond that, um, probably not a lot, developer-focused conference, so it's going to be all about the software and it's going to be all about the next-gen operating systems. Shane, what do you have to add? I have exactly nothing to add. Um, everything Neil said is <laughs> what, what I would have said at the same time. What well, and, and we'll also What's see we'll also see the watch. We'll see the watch uh, more integration with iPhone and maybe Mac and iPad, more seamless kind of. You're just going to see that uh, that's kind of Apple's direction for the last few years, right? More more integration between the, their different platforms. So it's kind of blurring the lines between OS 10 and iOS and now Watch OS. And they're going to have a preview of software that's going to allow apps to run natively on the watch so you don't get that stupid loading screen every time you try to launch a third-party app, which will be nice. Um, so what do I want to see? Uh, I want to see what I just said, more integration between the platforms. We've actually been running a series at Apple Insider on um, uh, th- things that Apple might int- have introduced on the Apple Watch that it would bring to other platforms and devices, which is something that the company's done for years, right? Introduce new technology and then gradually bring it elsewhere. And one of the things that I wrote about that I really want to see is uh, notifications being uh, more intelligent as they come into your devices. So right now, if you're wearing an Apple Watch and your phone is locked, you get the notification on your watch but not on your phone. But if I get an iMessage, uh, it'll ring on my Mac first, but then it'll ring like two seconds later on my iPhone and you know, it's one of those things where I feel like the devices now all talk to each other and they know, you know, which one is my primary screen. Um, if I'm on my Mac, then I probably shouldn't be getting notifications on my wrist and on my phone and all that. I should probably just be getting them on my Mac. And then when I walk away from my Mac, I could get them on my wrist. And then when my phone's unlocked, I could get them on my phone, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, that's something I'd really like to see in the next gen versions of iOS and OS 10, just kind of uh, smarter notifications. If I cancel out notifications on my Mac, they shouldn't be on my phone anymore. Uh, vice versa, that kind of stuff. Uh, there's just uh, little, little nagging little things that still exist between the platforms where they don't communicate quite as well as they should. Well said. Well said. You know, I've been thinking about things. Well, for one thing, I would really like for system preferences sound to work well. That's something that we've <laughs> noticed here. Um, what about, you know, you didn't mention the uh, the rumor about an Apple television service. You mentioned the radio service, the music service, but what about a subscription video service? Well, all the reports have said that there's not going to be anything until this fall, maybe later, just because they're trying to deal with these idiot television companies uh, mm-hmm. and content owners that don't want to change and they're stuck in the rabbit ears dark ages. And, you know, God forbid Apple come along and do something that... Uh, 
uh, you know, might shake things up and get people subscribing and, and, you know, paying money directly to them and rather than to cable providers and stuff like that. But no one wants to shake up the status quo. So it's a long, arduous process of trying to get these companies in line. You saw HBO now offers HBO Now. Showtime announced this week that they're going to have a similar service, which is actually going to be a little bit cheaper than HBO. It's going to be $12 a month versus 15 for HBO. Um, and that's a step in the right direction. But, I mean, that adds up quick, right? If I'm subscribing to Hulu and Sling TV and Showtime and HBO, uh, you know, for all my over-the-top slash uh, TV services, I'm paying as much as I was for TV before with a cable provider. So, you know, it's kind of this uh, catch-22 situation where as all these networks come out uh, with their own services and they want to charge a premium for their network, it's it's not going to – it's not going to be cost effective for a lot of consumers. So there's a lot of uh, wrangling that Apple needs to do to get it to a price point where it's going to be palatable for a lot of consumers. And so with those negotiations still ongoing, there's no expectation that we're going to see a service announced next week. Um, and presumably they wouldn't want to announce such a service without the new Apple TV hardware anyhow. So it seems like because the service can't go because of the contracts and whatever's going on with the hardware, we're not going to hear anything about the TV next week. Okay. Now, it is a developers conference, and we've talked about product and things that out of it. We haven't really talked about, you know, what is it, what's in it for app developers? And one of the things that I've been thinking a little bit about, and you can see if you agree or if I'm thinking all wrong, is we're, we're in the middle of a, a sort of transitional state between where Objective-C is the original designated preferred path for creating applications for iOS and Mac, and... Swift was announced, but Swift was was very early and very gestational. So I'm I'm hoping that at this WWDC, Swift becomes more mature, that that it's easier to convert between the two, that um, you know that version control works between, with Swift better, especially when you're talking about a historic conversion from an Objective C app, and that C++ compatibility comes into Swift. Well, we should see Swift go 1.0 uh, this next week which I think is the rumor anyway. Uh, and Swift has actually been increasingly popular. I mean, impressively popular. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what changes we're going to see. I'm, it's likely that they're going to be not transformational changes, but certainly you know, um, impressive changes to bring the tool chain along because there are still some issues in the tool chain. But uh, yeah, I mean, Swift has already, even in its early beta stages has already been uh, really impressively adopted. Yeah, and can you think of, of any applications that you've seen that are a, a good example of what a Swift app should be? I don't know that anybody publicizes exactly uh, what mm. they're doing. I mean, some people use Metal, obviously, uh, and Apple right. pushes Metal in the App Store. But as far as Objective-C versus Swift, I don't know that I've seen anyone any big developers anyway, uh, publicize that they're switching over. Okay. Well, I, I know that's sort of um, sort of inside baseball, but I, I like the uh, the idea of knowing what's going on with the technology and that, that the technology is still advancing. I would like to see uh, I would like to see the NFC chip on the iPhone six and the Apple Watch opened up to third party apps uh, in a secure way so we could see things like uh, location-based uh, stuff, you know, within your home, 
maybe you know uh, entry to buildings and stuff that have NFC capable readers compatibility maybe with some public transit systems that sort of stuff let's get that going we were just talking about that the other day actually about how that might be done Uh, by we I mean Neil and I and I think it's my presumption and I'm probably completely wrong because I'm often stupid but I think that there won't be an NFC API in the way we currently conceive of NFC APIs. I think what you'll actually see is the addition of host card emulation to iOS 9 or iOS 10, depending on when this comes. And that will be how Apple does NFC. Um, so HCE, explain for our listeners what host card means. That's what I was about to do. Um, host, card, host card emulation is really basically a way for the NFC transfer to fake what it's sending. Um, In the iPhone's case, the way NFC is implemented is they've actually taken the secure element and put it in the NFC tool chain. With host card emulation, with the way it's traditionally used in payment, and this is how Android Pay works and Android Wallet before it, with host card emulation, the secure element is off somewhere else. Um, the data is stored, you know, either in the cloud or in some cases in the SIM card, uh, which is why Google has such a problem with Android or with Google Wallet because it needed carriers, uh, carriers approval to use a secure amount within the SIM card. Um, and then what happens is when you say I want to use my Visa card with this at this particular store, the HCE kicks in and it tells the NFC, hey, this is the data to send, rather than the data being there already pulls it from the remote secure element and broadcasts it out. And in this way, you can actually send essentially anything. Um, anything that can be transfer- transmitted over NFC can be done with HCE. You don't need special hardware or anything else. Um, that's why... But the problem the problem with HCE, and that's what Shane and I were talking about the other day, is it requires some sort of a data connection in order for it to work because presumably it's hosted in the cloud or something like that. So if you're looking at the Apple Watch as something you'd like to be a little more independent of the iPhone, um, you wouldn't be able to, for example, uh, use uh, HCE on the Apple Watch if it wasn't paired to a phone. So right now you can use the Apple Watch to authorize a transaction even if the phone isn't there because it doesn't require a data connection to do that. It already has the credit card information stored on the device itself. That's why you have to reload your uh, credit cards onto the watch to get it on its own secure element on there. Um, So you could do NFC without the phone there, and it will work fine in the current implementation on the watch. But if it were HCE, then you could not uh, use – like let's say you're going out for a jog and you didn't bring your phone or something, and then you came back and you wanted to get into a building or something like that. If it was using host card emulation to in place of NFC for something like now that, now what I'm not super sure about in that scenario is for how if and for how long you could cache data within the device itself. Um, right, maybe they could have a workaround. Yeah, I have or something. to imagine that that's that's available because even Google. With the their mantra of well, actually, it's Facebook's mantra of move fast and break stuff, but it could be equally applied to Google. Um, even with that in mind, I don't think that there's a scenario in which they envision releasing something as fundamental as payments that requires pervasive data. I just I can't see them doing that. Agreed. Agreed. So we're all in agreement. Um, 
we, we talked a little bit about there being no new Apple TV hardware, and I kind of want to use the Apple TV existing hardware to segue into talking about HomeKit. And to do that is, is, you know, the existing Apple TV, that third-generation unit we've had around for, gosh, forever now, um, gained some abilities in, in one of the most recent updates where it will work as a HomeKit access point for, for remote control from outside of your home. Is that a good way of summarizing it, Neil? any of the HomeKit integration on your phone uh, and you're away from your home, there needs to be some sort of a device that acts as a hub for HomeKit within your home to control those devices. And so the brain, so to speak, of it is your Apple TV. Uh, this only works with the third generation Apple TV. So if you have the original hockey puck uh, second gen Apple TV, uh, HomeKit is not compatible with that. Um, and I believe they stopped even issuing software updates for that one, but you, I still have one and I still get all the new channels on it. I just don't get, uh, the software updates, but that's, uh, it's interesting, uh, that they, they continue to update and support even the older Apple TV. Um, it would seem that with no new hardware on the horizon, they have no intention of abandoning people that have the current devices considering well, how important it is to it seems to me that it also the helps with of, their of uh, installed base, right? You've already got those out there in the world if you just enable the software on it then you can have a lot more people using it immediately. Right, mm -hmm. and it's, you know, it's, what, 70 bucks now, 60 bucks, whatever they're charging for the Apple TV. So, um, yeah, I, I, it's a no-brainer purchase uh, for a lot of people, especially if they're excited about HomeKit. It's just a matter of getting the devices in the hands of people and updating some of the hardware that's already out there to be HomeKit compatible, like... A uh, big one missing right now would be Philips Hue. Um, a lot of people own Hue bulbs. They're pretty great, but no HomeKit support yet. So presumably they need some sort of firmware update for their hub and that kind of stuff to get it working. So it'll be nice once these devices start to come in line. There were a bunch announced this week. Uh, some are shipping right now. Some are shipping next month. I would guess next week at WWDC uh, you're going to see a lot more HomeKit uh, accessories shown off. And hopefully companies like Philips are going to make some announcements about when they're going to have support and some of the other established players, uh, Nest and, well, and, and Nest those may be going companies. So, yeah. N uh, Nest may be Lock, going Lock their Lock own way. and whatever those are. you got to think that they're going to – you got to think that they're going to have uh, some level of HomeKit yeah. support, well, I would think. They, they announced who knows, it's Google and, uh, and the other technology at uh, Google I.O. Yeah. But Google is also strangely supportive of Apple's ecosystem. I mean, they well, release a lot of apps first on iOS and stuff like that. So I think that they're cognizant of well, the that's fact true, that a lot of their users have Apple before, hardware. The reason for that is because they make tons of money from iOS devices, maybe like anything else. And the balance is shifting even away from the desktop right. toward mobile devices. And when the lion's share of your revenue now comes, or search revenue at least, now comes from... Uh, iOS devices, you simply can't afford to ignore them. It's not the same um, in the house or really anywhere else. Like you're never going to see AirPlay support in a Chromecast, for example. It's not going to happen. I would guess, considering Nest, I think it debuted uh, um, exclusively in Apple. Pre-Google right? purchase, yes. <laughs> I would guess that the majority, 
Yeah, yeah. I would guess that to this date, the majority of people that own Nest thermostats own iPhones. I would say it's probably more than 50% of Nest thermostat owners own iPhones. you also have to take into iPhones. account that you can't just, as far as I'm aware, I may be wrong on this, but I believe you can't just issue a firmware update. There's actually, just like the MFI program, oh, I guess it's part of the MFI program, there's an authentication chip required for HomeKit. So there's an actual piece of hardware for it. Um, so does that mean Philips Hue won't be able? I, so Philips Hue won't be able to support them if we get a new hub. Like, how's that going to work? Um, they released an updated hub, right? So all they left all of their other stuff intact and just replaced the hub. <sighs> it's. I'm not certain. I mean, it, you you need to have an auth chip anyway, but you get that from being a part of the MFI program to begin with. And, you know, you're doing MFI Bluetooth, or you're doing MFI Wi-Fi, or if you're doing BLE, you get both. And you you have to update a firmware and make sure that your new firmware uses the lingos that are appropriate for HomeKit. And I believe you also need an app update, because you have to have your app specify that you're joining a home and joining a room and joining a zone, and all of the things that HomeKit allows you to specify when you start grouping devices together. Right, but none of these things we're talking about were MFI in the first place, were they? Hue is not MFI. It just happens to work well with Apple devices. Mm, I think it connects to your Hue... home Ethernet. You plug it. You plug it an Ethernet cable into the back of the hub, and then it has its own proprietary wireless yeah, standard yeah. that it uses to communicate with the bulbs. It, so it actually works right. over like iPads. Work too. But if they're putting the made for iPod, iPhone, iPad logo on their boxes, then they are taking part in the MFI program. And so it's a good question as to whether or not they have what's required to, to take advantage of HomeKit. Um, Can HomeKit just, uh, you know, use Siri to send signals to an IP-based thing like uh, Philips Hue? Because, I mean, I can log in any browser and, and change my bulbs with Philips Hue. you'll note that the HomeKit devices that were really, are based on the user information we got from the HomeKit devices that were released earlier this week. Uh, there's a special HomeKit code that you have to use to register your device with HomeKit. Um, so on the box with your... Yeah, the nine-digit code. Yeah, there's a little nine-digit code that you have to actually input to register it. And I presume that that's all part of one coherent ecosystem. So you can't add something to HomeKit that's not HomeKit um, enabled. That makes sense. So there might have to be a new yeah, hub for Hue exactly. or something like that is, for this to work. Which is... Great. Yeah. So everybody gets to buy Speaking new hardware. That, hope hope you hope you stocked up on your seventy five dollar light bulb. Hub is one hundred and twenty bucks um, if you just want to buy the hub. This is this is worth bringing up. So the three that announced right were Lutron, Echo Bee, and Insteon. And Echo Bee's announcement said that you know uh, Lutron is out there in the market and available now, and and, and you can buy it and it works. Um, Insteon. It announced, as you say, the new hub. And Echobee said, we're going to be available in Apple in July with the thermostat. And they named it the same model, right? They said that's Echobee 3, which is the existing product that's out there. But hidden in an FAQ on their website, it says that the HomeKit-enabled ones will be available on this date. So the current ones are not. It's, yeah. it's, yeah, it's new a separate product, and they're going to be treating them as updating. That's not confusing at Let's all. Let's use the same name, the same price Ugh. point, and yeah, yeah, it's it's a little bit of a they're just, box they're looks just the same, right? From Apple. That's exactly it's, what Apple does. Yeah, no, I know. it. I know. <clears throat> yeah. 
but uh, it's it's going to be interesting. You know, I didn't really plan on buying another $250 thermostat just to get HomeKit, but um, if that's what it comes down to, I guess. I just would like somebody to create a smart thermostat that works with split air conditioners. You're in luck. You're in luck. Is there I one? Have there, oh, yes. And it's it's called Tado or Tato. It's another one of these. I just got the great, notification about that. There you go. That's right. They're a German company. They've been selling in Europe for a long time now, and they're just bringing their product to America. And I don't know anything about their HomeKit compatibility at this time, but they do handle your split air conditioning. Excellent. You know, I'm really excited about HomeKit. I, I don't know about anyone else, but I've kind of wanted this for a, a while now. I've had Nest. I've had Echo Bee, the, uh, the non-HomeKit-enabled version. And controlling through a, a central interface, even if that interface is Siri, goes a long way for me. There have been so many, like, really... I've been after this for a long time, too. Um, there have been so many good attempts that came really, really close, but ultimately failed. I mean, I guess Zigbee is probably the best so far. It has the widest support among manufacturers. But even that doesn't give you the um, the simplicity of theoretically what you'll be able to do with a bunch of home kits. Well, and Zigbee and Z-Wave... Oh, come on. What about Android at home? <laughs> you did not say Android at home, did you? Is that actually... The... <laughs> well, it's is dead it actually... now. Google like... I.O. 2012, man. Um, you know, Zigbee and Z-Wave and, or Z-Wave and, uh, you X-10. know, all those technologies and, well, no, X10 is dead. Don't, well, don't even X10 me. But, but Zigbee and Z-Wave are a part of HomeKit compatibility. You, you can address those devices as long as you've got a bridge that talks Zigbee or Z-Wave right. and HomeKit. Right. And that's in the whole spec for HomeKit. That's that's yeah. also probably got to be in the spec for Google's Brillo because the Nest has Zigbee built into it. That's how they're talking we, to protect. I think we actually broke that news that uh, bridges would be allowed. Just tooting our own horn. We also called a year ago the Apple TV would be the HomeKit bridge, by the way. In case anybody cares. Indeed. <laughs> I care. Do you think... So here's the thing. We've got uh, uh, CarPlay and we've got Android uh, yeah. Auto or whatever yes. it's called. Uh, and you see most of the devices now are coming out supporting both platforms. Yeah. Do you think that this fall or next year we're going to see Brillo slash HomeKit uh, devices that work with both platforms? Yes. How's, so, how's this going well, to play Brillo out? is the embedded OS, isn't it? It's the other one that's their HomeKit competitor. Uh, yeah, but Brillo can work with anything. So in theory, Brillo could work with HomeKit, right? Well, so here's, yeah, here's yeah, how so, this is. There's, there's those two competing pieces of the technology, but there's also a separate group called AllJoin, which is spelled A-L-L-J-O-Y-N, and they're basically an open source group trying to get all of these things to all do both. And, oh, and, if, you, and if you look at Insteon and Lutron and who they're partnering with, you'll see the AllJoin name there because they're trying to, to be all things to all of these different people because no one knows which one's going to be the winner yet. So, so the answer is yes. <laughs> yes, you are going to see all of these things. Uh, yeah, so Brillo is their embedded OS. It's, it's their 
for whatever reason. It's like a super lightweight Android. Yeah, yeah. for whatever reason they feel it needs to exist. It's a drop-in replacement for RT, for whatever RTOS you usually use in your embedded microcontrollers. Weave is the other one. Weave is the Weave, protocol yeah. itself. Is the HomeKit competitor. Which which CarPlay units were you saying everyone is going Android Auto and CarPlay? Because the truth is, I've only seen one manufacturer that's doing both aftermarket. No, I've seen like all the new car announcements and stuff. So basically, the way that it works is uh, with a lot of the embedded uh, infotainment systems on the cars now that they're announcing. I don't know if they're on the market. You're yet, talking about the not. OEMs shipping them. Yes. Right. Yeah. So okay, what you'll so... see is they have their own. Um, stupid uh overlay operating system and then it treats carplay and android auto as their own apps within their uh annoying operating system yeah, that's so basically you la- you start up your car then you choose carplay and then it launches or you choose android auto well you don't and it seems like a lot choose, of them are just supporting both it chooses when you connect your phone right oh you it auto launches an, you connect an ios device well, you connect an iphone specifically you can't connect an ipad and carplay launches you connect oh, that's cool. an Android L or Android M device, and Android Auto launches. Yeah, I've just seen videos of them where you got to like go on an interface and then tap on CarPlay, and then it that's, goes from their uh, UI then to the CarPlay to, UI. It's like an yeah. OS within an OS. It's a nightmare. You, you only manually select if you've gone back out because you're listening to an audio source that is not a part of CarPlay or Android Audio. If you're listening to the, uh, the radio, so you go back out to the head unit's interface – Select your right. radio stations, and then go back tapping to get back to CarPlay or Android Auto. But when you connect, it just jumps yeah, in the environment. I mean, I guess it's easy enough for these companies to just throw both in there, and that's what they're doing. So uh, that well, way they can support. You know, well, I mean, if I was a car maker, that's exactly what I would do because there's no right. I mean, you're covering ninety. Myself to yeah. You're covering ninety-five percent of. Uh, smartphones out there on the market today right if you have carplay and android auto sorry windows phone users i mean Um, notably the only one which is hilarious by the way since microsoft was first on this with sync i know (laughs) but um they're not in the current generation of ford sync though they were only in the first gen ford sync i think i think ford ditched them um very recently just like last year um the only one that's not doing both is unsurprisingly ferrari (laughs) i can't imagine do, do they know someone between Apple and, and Ferrari? Hmm. <laughs> Eddie Q. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've I've got the uh, the Pioneer aftermarket unit right now that does uh, CarPlay and Android Auto, and I actually need to get an Android device to, to see what Android Auto looks like compared. But um, but they are the only aftermarket that I can think of right now that does both. Uh, the Alpine Pine unit is a really brilliant implementation of CarPlay. They've got... Uh, you know, you know how you go and you were saying that you've got the radios world and then you've got CarPlay's interface? Yeah. The Alpine unit, those guys are smart. They went through and for everything that's a part of their native interface, they studiously copied iOS 8 as best they could. So it doesn't feel like you're really transitioning. And because they only do CarPlay, you're basically doing settings or radio or backup camera, basically. Every part of those things looks like it was done by someone who loves Apple. Did Samsung make the operating system for that? or? <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting because on the Pioneer head units, you can go and dig into settings and find an about page, and they list all of the licenses. And you can see that Pioneer is using Android open source program to get, get the, uh, the source code to run Android as the base of their car head, right. head unit and running CarPlay on top of it. The Alpine unit doesn't show 
their licenses, and I haven't bothered to try and find a way to disassemble it to see when Earth is inside. Does does uh, uh, does CarPlay need a uh, uh, operating system to ex- exist within? Can we just get a head unit that's just CarPlay? Well, that's that Alpine unit as best you're going to get. Well, yeah, but that's what I'm um, saying. Like that still has its own iOS ripoff layer or something. And I mean, any, anytime I mean, like these companies CarPlay aren't software give you companies, volume right? I mean, have you ever had like a car interface? Or TV interface or anything where you're just like, oh, this is a great experience. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, these companies. I have actually. Oh, really? What was it? Um, LG WebOS. Oh. Mercedes. <laughs> well, yeah, Web- but Mercedes. Their um, infotainment stuff is amazing. So, it, but it's few and far between, right? These companies aren't software companies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't specialize in user interface. They don't specialize in having a good experience. It's laggy. It looks like crap. Uh, you know, you just deal with this stuff all the time. Just get rid of this this over layer. It's like Android and, and uh, you know, all these companies want to differentiate and put their own skin on top of it. You know, you got TouchWiz, you've got uh, what, uh, HTC Sense or whatever. Just cut this crap out. It's just Sony. Yeah, Xperia. it's just it's just terrible. Anytime, anytime there's a, a layer on top of the intended experience, it ruins it. And so that's what I'm wondering. Can I can I just get a CarPlay unit that's just so- CarPlay? No. Is that by design or is that because these companies suck? It's so, it's by design. Apple CarPlay runs on top of an OS, whether it runs on top of BlackBerry Cunix or it runs on top of Android or it runs on top of something. You but you need something to like go back to to have like a main menu or something? I mean I guess if you need to like change the settings so here or something. Here are the things, right? Here, right. you, you need settings, right? You, when, and whether settings are stupid like the clock, which they can get from the iPhone, or they're something like balance right. and fader yeah. and EQ, right? There's no app within CarPlay right. that can do that. There's no app within CarPlay that can address the uh, the radio. You know, some of them are AM, FM. Some of them are FM and right. HD radio. And, and Apple doesn't know anything about that and really doesn't need to. Um, the volume controls, whether it's just up and down or up, down and mute – or the volumes for that and the volumes for nav voice and those things. All of that volume control and volume control interface is not handled within CarPlay. Not the Alpine mention. makes it look really good like it fits, right. like it should be, like it like it was. But the Pioneer one is a totally separate world. So you're in CarPlay, you're listening to something, and you hit the volume control, and you get weird quadrilateral jagged shapes on top of your beautiful CarPlay interface with rounded rectangles. Not to mention... Um, climate control and things like that. Right. And it's worth pointing out that this is this exact conversation is why lots of people think that Apple's car project is not a car, but in car OS. Hmm. It, this is one of the reasons that I like HomeKit so much. I don't want to run you know eight million apps to control my devices. Just I don't want to deal with your user interface, your app, all that stuff. Just give me one easy way to do it. And that's all I want. And just having this overlay on top of it, and I got to go back to your crappy OS, and then go back to CarPlay. I feel like that just cheapens the experience. You know, Apple is doing the best they can because they got to deal with all these manufacturers and partners and stuff like that. And that's kind of their compromise solution. But you know, if Apple was really going to make something that would work, it's what you're saying there. You know, some sort of a car OS or something like that, uh, where manufacturers could just integrate Apple's operating system from top to bottom, control everything in the car, just to make it a much better experience. Because uh, the experience uh, with most uh, integrated operating systems on these devices is terrible because they're not software companies and they don't know anything about user experience at all. I think what yeah. you have here in the first generation of CarPlay 
is the the in-car equivalent of the Motorola Rocker. Right? <laughs> oh, it's way better than that. Come and on. Then, no, I'm saying generation, generationally right. speaking. Yeah, I see the and analogy. And then in a few years, you'll end up with the iPhone equivalent of the CarPlay. It was yeah. the Rocker, right? I didn't get that. It, you, you've got that correct. It was the Rocker, like E3 was the Motorola name for that thing. That, yeah, the, that, one that, <laughs> the one that crashed on Steve Jobs on stage. And the was, like, one that you could tell... Someone. He wanted to talk way more about the iPod than he wanted to talk about that thing. But, uh, you know, Neil, I got to get you on FaceTime one time and just show you the Alpine and show you the Pioneer. And, and you will vomit at the Pioneer and you will Good. love. I'm, I'm glad somebody's got it right because sure. these experiences are just terrible. You know, these. Pioneer, I know I just sullied their name. They get a lot of other things right, but. But I look at a company like Samsung, and it's like, okay, Samsung has their share of problems, right, uh, in terms of how they do stuff. But they make okay hardware, and they develop a lot of software, clearly. How the hell can they make such crappy TV interfaces? Like, have you ever used one of these Samsung smart TVs, and now they got cameras in them, you can wave at them and stuff? I mean, does anybody use that stuff, those integrated apps and all that? I mean, they're a nightmare. You would rather deal with anything. I know people... Yeah, I know people that use the built-in Netflix app right. and the built-in Amazon app on those things. And, and you know, the thing with – they said, what should I do? And I said, well, you get a nice television. Great. I bought a Samsung. Great. Now go buy yourself an Amazon Fire TV stick right. or an anything. Apple TV. Anything is better. You can get a Chromecast. Like, anything but, is better. But I have – but I have all the built-in stuff, and they use the built-in stuff. And, it crashes. And, it lags. It doesn't better. work. My they use it? They use the built-in stuff. Yeah, my parents use it all the time. A lot of people in our position really overestimate how much. But can they figure it out? Like, you know, how many times have you been to somebody's house? And I mean, it's 2015 now. You go over to their house, and they still have the picture stretched. You know, in in like aspect ratio wrong, or they'll have it like hooked up with non high def cables on an HDTV, and they'll be like, "Look at how great the picture looks." And it's like, like what? Like, have you looked at the picture? So, I mean, I'm surprised that people like that can figure out these interfaces because I, as a nerd loser, can't figure out these interfaces half the time when I'm trying to mess around with them. So, you know, for some of these people to get on there, like if I if my parents got a smart TV and tried to get on there and figure out how to get on Netflix, I mean, geez, it'd be They'd be calling me in about two seconds. The the difference is that people are willing to spend some amount of time to learn right. like five basic actions, right? I spent a lot to, a, a large portion of my life helping people develop and optimize software for enterprises, and all of the nice UIs don't work in the enterprise because enterprise people want something very quick. That they can, they don't care if there's 97 options on the screen at one time, as long as they know the path through their application. And it's exactly the same way in stuff for, mm-hmm. I mean, for lack of a better term, for normal consumers, right? People have no problem learning the five things they need to do to watch Netflix, right? And they'll deal with it. They don't. Adding another box to them is a whole other layer of complexity that they don't want to care about. So the the idea for for people like my parents of a TV with everything built in and I, I plug it in and that's it. I'm done is very, do they, do uh, they use good. anything like voice no input or motion input or are they just using a controller with 8,000 buttons on it? 
they're just using a controller with 8,000 buttons. They would probably use voice input if I didn't force them to disable the microphone and the camera because right. it's a massive invasion of privacy. I would, I mean, I would, I would, I would love to have some great yeah, voice I mean, input, which is another reason why I'm so upset uh, about this no Apple TV next week because I've ranted about it before, but the voice control on the Xbox One is so bad. Like, I, I cannot believe that a major consumer electronics company could put out something that works so poorly uh, <laughs> on a f- $500 box that just sits there plugged into the wall, you know? Like, it's got enough processing power to figure it out, but it works so bad. I just cannot believe that this is something that's shipping and it has not been updated since it's come out. And yet I still use it because it's so convenient. I put up with how crappy it is because of the convenience. So if someone could actually make a good voice input method for uh, controlling my TV and everything in the living room, Apple, then I would really love that and would buy that in a heartbeat. If anyone's going to do it, I hate What about the uh, Amazon Echo? I don't have one myself. Yeah, well, you got to hold the TV, remote. The but that, I mean, it's, you know, I've I lost the remote to my Apple yeah. TV years ago, and I just use the remote app on my phone to control it. And now on my Apple Watch, well, which is awesome, probably the best use I have for my Apple Watch, uh, the remote app to control my Apple TV. That thing's awesome. Um, yeah. You, you remember I, when I, Apple yeah. used to ship laptops and, and <laughs> yep. Mac Minis with remotes? Yeah. The little, little white remote. Ones. Yeah, the little plastic ones. Those are sending out the same IR signal that today's Apple TV expects. So I've got six of those white ones. You want to mail me one? Because I don't have this one. Remote. We just grab another. <laughs> no, well, the rumor is that, right, the new Apple TV is going to have a touchpad on it <laughs> for its input method. So. That strikes me as insane balls. I don't it think does that happens. Me. It, or it does me. It, it does, does you. to me as well. It also strikes me as insane balls. Because actually, I also use the remote app because even though my Apple TV remote is sitting six inches from my face right now, I also use the remote app because I'm lazy. And trying to navigate the Apple TV UI with the touchpad is an exercise in frustration. Like, have you ever tried to get, in Netflix, have you ever tried to go um, to the related titles? that you're, Like when you're in a movie, right? You're in the movie, the specific movie screen, and there's the related titles along the bottom. Every, at least eight right, or ten yeah. times, when I try to scroll down to the related titles, I go. I, I even do that on the end up in the next screen. Yeah, even there. on the home it's screen, insane. right? So and you want to you want to go over one, and this Apple is one TV. of those one of those situations where having yeah. a physical remote with a click on it to just go over one is better than a touchscreen because you swipe to the left, and even on my watch, I'll swipe to the left, and then the next thing I know, it goes over four icons. It's like, no, wait, go back, you know. So. Yeah, so now I don't use said, the app because that, I, I want a real physical thing. I If I have to unlock a phone, launch an app, and then pick which Apple TV I'm controlling, it's just way too much. Just give me the damn remote. Now that said, if I had an iPhone 6S with haptic feedback mm-hmm. on my display, like we have and it would haptic click every time you go over, that would be awesome. That would be really cool. 13 inch mm-hmm. Pro. Yeah, and ball game. Yeah, that's a whole different ball game. Well, but, but what if it what if really it's an integral part of the experience with an app store, right? Thing, so you, know? you got to think outside of the box of uh, just just sitting. Well, historically, the first Apple TV cost two hundred and forty nine bucks. 
and then they dropped it to 165 bucks, and then they dropped it to 129. And now, now we have Apple TVs that were 99 and are now 69. So when you add in the cost of a touchscreen remote, well, I kind, I, I kind of alluded is the price point. I kind of alluded to it before, right? They're still well, supporting yeah. even the second gen Apple what? TV, even though they're not giving it software updates, still getting content on it, right? So who says that the $69 Apple TV is going to go anywhere? They can introduce a $200 Apple TV and still have both devices available. But if you want the App Store and you want to get apps to you know do new and interesting things with your TV, like, for example, play games, then perhaps a, a controller with a touch panel on it becomes an integral part of the experience. Maybe that's uh, maybe that's what they're going to do with it. Who knows? I mean, presumably, right, they're going to have – they already have Bluetooth controller support for made-for-iPhone controllers – Presumably, those same controllers are going to connect to a new Apple TV, and you have a full-fledged game console. And not only do you have a full-fledged game console, but you have one that allows you to download apps to multiple devices and only buy once. So now, bye-bye Nintendo 3DS, bye-bye uh, you know, PlayStation Vita, in addition to the game consoles that plug into your TV. Apple's now entered itself into both of those markets, and they're small markets, but they'll wipe them out. Well, no, there's no Apple TV coming, so I don't think so. So I mean, is that your WWDC when, when they pull When they pull the trigger on that well, hardware. Well, I mean, they got to get because, developers you know, on board, right? I, They're going to show a game Steve that Steve Jobs works years with, uh... ago made a comment about game consoles and how much they had sold or whatever, and he, he, he was mentioning it during one of their presentations, and he was remarking, you know, that the Xbox 360 or something had sold some amount of consoles, and it was sm- it was nothing. It was like potatoes, right? It was like, you know, oh, they've shipped 25 million consoles to date. 25 million consoles? Like, are you kidding me? You know, a- Apple ships that many phones, you know, in no time. So Apple is looking for a much bigger market, and that's why I say they could wipe out these markets. The hardcore gamers are going to stick to their boxes, their PCs, you know, the Xbox One, whatever. But that casual game market that bought, you know, 200 million Wiis back in the day when that was a fad or something, that's something where Apple could just come in and clean up, Right. Uh, imagine cross-platform games where you can play it on your phone, you can play it on your iPad, you can play it on your Apple TV. It syncs through iCloud. All of your achievements are saved through Game Center. The infrastructure's there. They've got it there just to, to knock it out of the park. It's just a matter of pulling the trigger, and they apparently aren't going to pull the trigger next week because for Apple, it's not really about that market. It's about the subscription TV. That's my guess. My guess is the reason that they decided to pull the hardware next week is because they're more interested in the ongoing revenue of the subscription, subscription TV that service. Is- That gaming um, uh, ecosystem you just described is exactly how it would work if you are all Microsoft right now. No, it isn't. If you, are you can't Xbox play Xbox One Windows, games on your PC. Windows Mobile, that's exactly how it works. If you buy a copy... It is. You no, know, I mean, if you buy a copy... Of, this is where Microsoft's so stupid, right? If you buy a Maybe copy of uh, I, Halo the Master Chief Collection for your Xbox One, you can play it on your Xbox One. Now, meanwhile, Microsoft has a voice-controlled personal assistant called Cortana on the phones, which is named after a Halo character. You know where Cortana is not? It's not on the Xbox One, the the very game console where you can play Halo games. I mean, the logic doesn't make any sense at Microsoft. It's just like a bunch of different silos operating over there, and, and their game division is just – they don't care about it apparently. I, I don't know why they do the things they do or how they operate, but you're right. It would make sense if you could just buy a game and play it on your PC or on your Xbox One, right? Why wouldn't they do that? That would that would be brilliant, but you can't do it. If you buy an Xbox One game, you can only play it on your Xbox One. Well, 
Right. But you, you can, you can there are some games, yeah. Those games together at the same time, right? So you can play, if you have FIFA, if you have guys, FIFA, guys, guys. So if you have FIFA, right, you can play yes, FIFA. Yes, but not on, on the Xbox One. Or FIFA on your, is there a Windows tablet right now? If there was, you could play FIFA there. And then go back to your Xbox, and you're, you're logged in. And you're logged into your but Xbox it's a different game on your phone, right? And then when you go back to your Xbox, your progress right. on FIFA for mobile is there on FIFA on Xbox. At least, yeah, it's a different game. But I'm saying the actual. Well, it's always going to be a different game. There's no getting. I don't think it's always going to be a different game. I mean, if you look at some of the graphics um, that you have on the iPad right now and the iPhone, exists. right? If you blow those up right. to TV quality, games like Real Racing, which can be played through AirPlay, I don't think that Apple needs to put out a graphic powerhouse console. And the game can be, you know, equivalent experience running on the same base code. Play it on any screen size you want. The only thing that's missing from this equation is the Mac. There's no ability to buy an app for your iPhone uh, or iPad and then be able to download it on your Mac and play the equivalent on there. If if they that that's the one piece of it that's missing. But right now, all they would have to do is put an app yeah, store on an Apple TV and give it cross-platform support with iPhone apps. Buy it once, play it on all of them, and have it sync. And they would be ahead of Sony. They'd be ahead of Microsoft already, and they they would have just entered the market and already knocked both of them out of that out of that space. All right, guys, I want to wind it up here because we're going to have an interview with special guest, the CEO of Insteon, who is one of the HomeKit partners coming up. So thanks a lot, and I'm so glad we had this uh, this talk all about Apple TV and Microsoft. <laughs> uh, Neil El Presidente, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me uh, at Apple Insider, obviously, uh, where I'm slaving away every day. And I'm also on Twitter at ThisIsNeil, N-E-I-L. Fantastic. Shane, El Presidente with the coup coming. Where can we find you? Um, well, you can find me at Apple Insider. And apparently soon you can find me in Neil's position at Apple Insider. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, this concludes this portion of episode 19. Stay tuned for just a moment, and we'll be back with uh, the CEO of Insteon. So at this point in the Apple Insider podcast, I'm pleased to introduce Joe Data, who is the CEO of Insteon, a uh, connected home home automation company. Joe, welcome. Uh, Thanks, Victor. Thanks for having us. So, I know the Insteon name from having seen some of the products in places like smarthome.com and some of the home improvement stores. Can you tell me a little bit more about the history of the company and um, you know, how long you've been around and what are the kinds of things that you've historically done? Sure. Yeah. Insteon, the product line, and Insteon, the technology, is uh, the culmination of what is now 23 years of work. We entered the industry in 1992 as a cataloger of third-party products. In 95, we were uh, amongst the first e-commerce sites of, of any industry to launch a, a store. In uh, about the same time, we started developing our own products and in 97, acquired two small engineering firms to eventually launch our own brand uh, line of products to, to build products that the other manufacturers uh, weren't building. And uh, as a cataloger and a, and a, and a direct marketing uh player in the space, the customers were telling us certain things that they wanted. And, and if they weren't available, we just decided that, well, well, we'd make them then. And in the late 90s, we were out talking to the retailers and builders, and it became clear to us that the wireless technologies that were available, that we could buy off the shelf and put into the products, um, they just weren't good enough. 
and I, I knew the reliability wasn't going to be there to, to make a, a sustainable uh, effort at a broad mass market. So that's when we start working on the Insteon technology, which we launched in 05 and, and now is in millions of homes. Uh, and it's a uh, very, very different technology. It's a mesh technology, but it is uh, a dual mesh technology. So we have an RF mesh, uh, like a Wi-Fi or Bluetooth is RF. Neither of those are mesh. Mesh means repeating networks. Mm-hmm. Um, and on top of that, we layer in the electrical wires of the house. And because the problems that exist on one layer don't exist on the other, when those problems occur, and they, they do, um, the other uh, physical layer works right around it. And you end up with a really, really, really robust wireless connection between any devices, all your devices. Right. So, so prehistory was there was this thing called X10, and X10 had problems. Am I saying it right? That's right. So far? Yep. Okay. And that was about the time frame when retailers and, and consumers and customers started asking you to do something about some of the problems that they were seeing out there? Yeah. Well, to, to be honest, the, the first problems were at the physical layer. Uh, if you wanted to turn one of the old-fashioned switches on, you press the bottom of the switch. And if you wanted to turn it off, you press the bottom of the switch. And that's not how light switches work. And so customers are saying, we'd like... One where you press the top of the switch for on and the bottom for off. That seemed obvious. We couldn't get any of the manufacturers to build it, so we did. Um, Then the next layer was, uh, as we were reaching out to a broader market, they were telling us, we'd like it to work. (laughs) And we'd have to be here to support it when it didn't. Um, And too too much of our revenues were from selling problem-solving products, kits, services, etc. And um, that just... It, it's it's a house of cards, and people in the X10 world, every device you added to your network weakened your network. And mm-hmm. we wanted something that was just the opposite. Your 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 network should get stronger as you add nodes. And so, um, given our background on the on the power line and the fact that there are mobile devices and battery powered devices like sensors and things, we 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 knew we needed to reach into the uh, RF space. And boy, uh, it just was. It, it is really an unbelievable solution. The, the reliability is on the orders uh, on the order of a hundred times better having these two physical layers, and uh, so we, uh, we love it. Customers love it, and uh, we're having a lot of success with it. Yeah, just so I understand, um, see if I'm saying this right. When you have power line in in homes like we have in North America, you have different phases of the fuse box or the breaker box, and so you've got uh, a device at one outlet and a device at another outlet, but if they're not on the same circuit or not on the same phase, they may not be able to talk to each other. So that's one of the weaknesses of power line. Do I have that right? Well, um, technically, it's a single phase that's been split, mm-hmm. but but you can think of it as you know hard to talk uh, from one to the other. It's not always that they can't talk from one to the other, but um, quite commonly. Uh, a, a single transmitter on one end of one phase can't talk to a single receiver on the other end of the other phase. And you can think of this as being the same as putting your Wi-Fi router um, you know, upstairs in, in your office or spare bedroom and trying to talk to the washing machine in the basement. It's a very good, and, and especially if it's in a metal can like most washing machines are, um, very good chance that it won't reach. It's simply out of range. And so um, the problems, the, there are real problems in power line, 
there are real problems in RF. They happen to be just different. In the old world, people would try to connect the two uh, the, the two sides of the phase or the two right. phases, as you put it, in the circuit panel, which is not consumer friendly. And and so in the R in in the Insteon world, we simply use RF as the bridge between those phases or or locations on the power line that, that have problems. So the other big issue for the power line are switching power supplies. So certain manufacturers of certain switching power supplies end up inadvertently injecting noise or attenuation onto the power line and, and can create little sinkholes of communication on the power line. Well, that's fine. RF will get us there. Likewise, um, when you put a, a metal refrigerator door in, in the way of something that cre- creates an RF shadow mm-hmm. and um, or concrete stucco on your walls if you're trying to talk to a spa outside or uh, metal around a, a washing machine. Uh, both both physical paradigms um, are, are challenging to get uh, anything nearing perfection out of. Uh, repeating helps, so mesh definitely helps. So all else being equal, we, we believe mesh is uh, superior to a, a star network configuration like Wi-Fi or Bluetooth. Um, and then two meshes, all the better. Right, and the uh, you know the instructions that you're passing, turn on and off a light switch, that signal gets sent from some command box, an outlet, a wall plate. And then it repeats down across the uh, the mesh, changing from y- from RF to, to power line as needed. Yeah, basically. Yep, that's right. So uh, we use something called simulcasting. It's a very very different approach. We we can do it, and most engineers uh, roll their eyes when we say that, because if you're pushing a lot of data around, simulcasting uh, typically is not a good idea. But we're just trying to turn an outlet on or off or send 72 degrees to a thermostat or I'm wet from a leak sensor. It's a very small amounts of data. Or sometimes, obviously, we're managing the databases inside these devices. But in all cases, it's relatively small amounts of data. And so by kind of re-architecting how that data is uh, formatted, simulcasting allows us to send a message from the controller, if you will. And it can be a central controller. It can be a switch, a motion sensor, whatever to one or more devices on the network. And instead of routing the signal, uh, every device that hears it repeats it a, a given number and a specified number of times. And so the signal, uh, there's no network configuration, there's no network configurator, there's no network memory that gets eaten up in all of this. And so you can build a network as large as you want and the larger, the better. Uh, we have an embassy in Washington, D.C. that uses Insteon for all of their, their whole campus irrigation lighting system. Uh, uh, outdoors lighting system is all run on Insteon. It's a big campus. We have uh, commercial industrial buildings of million square feet. We have uh, homes. There's, there's a massive uh, home product in Colorado that has nearing 2,000 Insteon nodes in it. So it just scales like uh, like there's no tomorrow. But theoretically, there's no limit to the number of Insteon devices you could have in a network. And when you hit the on button, or if you want to, all off is a great example. If you hit all off, all of the lights will um, respond within what can be perceived as without a delay by the human brain. And we call it Insteon, stands for Insteon. And so you mash a button, everything in the network that is supposed to respond will respond in... Um, you know, tens or, in worst case, a couple hundred milliseconds, which is faster than uh, 
It, it appears instant to us. It's, it's almost imperceptible. 100 milliseconds is totally acceptable. Right. Right. So that's, that's pretty huge that, that you've got this ability to create these huge installs. And even with all of the people using them all around the, uh, the campus, as you say, um, the network's not so chatty as to be swamped? Right. So the other, the other side of the equation is it's important to architect uh, the chattiness. And so um, it, I, I think uh, what, what we're seeing in, in the connected home space is that uh, there's a lot of new stuff happening, a lot of new products being developed. And most of the engineers that come into this come from uh, you know, high-tech engineering jobs where they're used to pushing around a lot of data. They have networks that act a certain way and do certain things. And and in that paradigm, those uh, best practices are, are well documented and understood. In our space, what we have found over 20 years is a very different approach is the ideal approach. So you can put Wi-Fi into light bulbs and, and outlets, but... Uh, they'll suffer from some certain list of, of challenges and, and you know, cost, complexity, et cetera. Um, we're on the other end of the spectrum. Uh, our, our vision is uh, Insteon in billions of nodes. This industry is very, very nascent still, and there's a lot of runway ahead of us and a technology that costs significantly less and works significantly better well, you know, we still believe uh, has a has an uh, an excellent opportunity uh, for some serious penetration. And over the cat last year, we've m been making announcements about our work with Microsoft, uh, Apple, who we just released uh, one of the two first, the only two launch partners uh, for HomeKit with Apple, uh, day before yesterday, uh, and then a few weeks ago, um, we launched uh, an all join product with uh, our friends at Microsoft. Um, and, and, oh, by the way, in, in January, we announced our work with Google and works with Nest program. And so we have 200 products that solve the vast majority of building automation, small to medium-sized commercial, uh, all the way down to small residential, building automation, home automation, connected living uh, product or uh, situations out there. And, and it takes a long time to build up that arsenal of products. And because we've been around uh, so long, we've done that. And so if you want to control your water heater, you need a 220 volt high capacity relay switch that you can communi communicate to. And there's just not a lot of those out there. Most, most of the new entrants in our space come out with a light bulb or a plug-in module or something like that. And, and that's great if all you're trying to do is change the color of the bulb in the lamp in the room you're in. But uh, once, once, you, once you kind of get addicted to the, uh, to the uh, convenience, uh, safety, and fun of having these things connected, you want to do more. And then you better have all kinds of switches, keypads, outlets, modules, inline modules, fan controllers, thermostats, you know, the list goes on and on. Yeah. So backing up a step, you, you've talked about residential and commercial. So who is the person that, that ought to buy an Insteon product? Who, who is the target consumer for you? Uh, the middle of our bullseye is uh, a homeowner. And, um, and to, to us, it really means about that broad. There are a few countries, so we're in over 70 countries, so that's not all. But you know, if, if you're in Europe, 
uh, you know, North America, South America, Australia, we're, we're, we have distribution, we have products that are developed for that market. And um, whether you want to install it yourself or have somebody install it, we're indifferent. And in most cases, we, or if it's bought at retail, we don't know because a lot of the stuff that's bought at retail is installed by the consumer. And a lot is handed to a contractor to have him install. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's our target market, but our products find their way into some really fun places like embassies and 800,000 square foot printing facilities because it works and it's affordable, it's reliable, and um, it, it it's relatively simple. Um, and I don't mean to kind of throw ourselves under the bus here, but, you know, we're always trying to make it simpler and there's a lot of work to be done. But uh, I think given, you know, if you compare us to what else is out there, um, we're, we're quite competitive. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say aiming at simplicity is throwing yourselves under the bus at all. Uh, people don't really realize just how hard work it is to make something simple. Yeah, that's, it, it, that is such a, a good point. Um, a, a, one of my favorite quotes from a, a dear friend, uh, basically the inventor of the universal remote. And I remember one day uh, having lunch with him and he said, you know, Joe, simple is hard. And coming from a person that had had as much success uh, as he had had, that that had a lasting impression on me. Yeah, and, and when I think about universal remotes, he's right. Simple is really hard. It is. It is. Yeah. I've, I've yet to find the perfect universal remote. <laughs> yeah, and and they're still working on it. Um, there there are now new players in that space working on it, making making progress all along. But uh, it's difficult, and I think that that's probably an excellent paradigm comparison, or, uh, if that's the right phrase. But um, you know, they're trying to help you unify the control of, let's say, a TV, a set-top box, and a, a stereo. And we're trying to do that, plus your light switches and your outlets and your sensors, and you know. So uh, the it, it in some ways it's even more challenging. Now, the Apple HomeKit experience kind of does that, doesn't it? I mean, when we're controlling all of these different things through Siri, isn't that turning the iPhone and Siri into the remote control? Uh, Well, uh, in some ways, yes. But um, one of the things that we've learned and many of the other players in the industry have learned is that um, you have to be very careful about what really works and what, you know, what doesn't always work. And so uh, the, the, the HomeKit paradigm or platform certainly brings unity and uh, some kind of obvious consistency to how things uh, will work, or at least the things you can and can't do with uh, the products that are out there. Um, it's uh, Obviously, it's just launching, and so uh, I, I think the future is very, very exciting. Um, and the present is exciting too. Don't get me wrong, but um, voice voice recognition um, and the, and the way we humans communicate uh, and the way the platform deals with it. Um, I, I I think people maybe the best way I can put this is I think most people will start by hitting a button on the phone to make something happen and then start experimenting with uh, with Siri mm-hmm. um, and uh, for a guest. Uh, or even the the less technical uh, people in the house. It's very exciting to see it work, but 
learning the discipline about what needs to be said to make it work sometimes is a great experience and sometimes isn't. I, I've seen it go both ways. Right. So um, I, I'm a huge believer in, you know, kind of the, the mobile device uh, UI, UX, um, and I'm very excited about the, the, the Siri side of it. Um, but um, I think uh, time, time will tell how quickly it'll move towards being in that great category. And with Apple, it almost always ends up being great. So, you know, I'm very, very excited about it. But it uh, wouldn't surprise me if a little bit of work uh, stands between here and there. Sure. You know, I, I think about the difference between a good product and a good demo. And, mm. uh, you know, the idea of picking up the phone and talking to Siri and having something happen seems like a great, great thing. And it may be a great demo, but if you have to understand the, the syntax that you have to use when you speak with Siri, maybe that's... Uh... Yeah, and they're well on their way, I think, to nailing it. Um, but uh, but it, it is not for the faint of heart. And, and when we think about things, we think about things differently. So I think I'm probably making too much of the work that still needs to be done. If you've got one or two devices, it's probably going to be really great, a wonderful experience right out of the box today. Um, if you've got one of our ours or Lutron's hubs, you can probably go home and and you know get that light your lights to turn on and off. But when you start uh, building out networks, uh, and our customers do, our average customer has dozens of communicating devices in their house, um, and that doesn't happen overnight, but it happens over time. Um, and as you start building out, you know, a whole house, different rooms, different devices, et cetera, then it becomes more challenging. Just like that universal remote that we're talking about on, on, on your nightstand or your coffee table. Um, it, it's it's non-trivial. Well, but the alternative is I have to, you know, if I'm using my phone as the controller and I'm using an app, a button within an app to control things, I have to unlock the phone, launch the app get to the right device, press a button. There, yes, there's no doubt that uh, the, the phone as an interface um, is, is awesome uh, at certain times and, and maybe less than awesome at others. Uh, I think the, the watch, the smart watch, really helps here. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, all I got to do is uh, point it towards me and I've, I've, I'm through the first two things that, you know, I don't have to take it out of my... Uh, pocket and I don't have to wake it up. And for the things that I do regularly, I pop it on my favorite screen. I'm, I'm, I'm in and out. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited about the watch as, as an interface. Likewise, when you're not at home and alerts are the most important part of what a connected home is about. The water sensor triggers an alert yeah. that says, you know, your clothes washers are flooding. Right. Or, or it's four o'clock and your latchkey kid arrives home. Um, you know, for years, those alerts came to me in my pocket and, you know, we're all busy and you don't, you know, I, I see it at some point later. Well, now I see it if, if uh, you know, if they arrive home at 402, I see it at 402 because I get the haptic, you know, and a ding and I, I crank my wrist and, you know, uh, the front door open and front door closed. Okay, 402, everything's good. So... I'm excited. Uh, the, the quick, always, uh, always available control side, as well as the uh, super quick and easy alert side uh, through the, the watch is, is really exciting. Cool. Let me ask. I mean, we talked a little bit about how you don't have uh, the, the best insight into 
how people are installing it, whether people, consumers buy it in retail and install it themselves uh, or contractors are buying it. So do you have uh, sort of a customer outreach program? Have you interviewed customers about what problem they were solving when they bought your product the first time? We do. And um, we so uh, if they buy it through our own sales channel, uh, they always receive a, a follow-up survey. And, and every single one of those responses I, I think forever um, is and has been uh, read and gets categorized and, and communicated and processed. Um, where we increasingly now are uh, going through channel partners, you know, like Walmart, Target, Costco, Best Buy, Home Depot, Menards, etc. Um, it's it's more difficult uh, to do that. We, we're, we could certainly be uh, a little more uh, aggressive, if that's the right term. Or sensitive, uh, and 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 reach out more because our call center uh, deals with the challenges. You know, every day and every week, we're amassing uh, lots of data about what motivates them to call in. And I can tell you that we've learned long ago that the problems, uh, and maybe this is what you're really getting at, uh, the problems that the uh, our customers uh, are looking to solve, and and they they are such a broad. Uh, scope or segment of the market that I, I think I think that it, it is the connected home space and I've never seen data to suggest otherwise there, everybody that, that's too strong people uh, have different lifestyles they have different family situations they have different values they have different physical structures they live in right some of us live in detached homes some of us live in small multi some of us live in large multi um, that of course you can, there's a lot to be learned and there are lots of groups that, you know, have real numbers, but to really nail it, you have to, you have to have a product offering that, that crosses uh, all these borders and, uh, and, and your user interfaces that can address them all. And um, I'm not saying we or anyone else are there yet, but I'm, I'm excited about what we and others are doing. and, and, and these these uh, platforms like HomeKit, what makes them really exciting is, you know, it comes from the world world's one of the world's most uh, respected brands, and so having that logo on the package, I think, gives the customer the confidence that hey, this is going to work. If I buy that box over there, regardless of the color, shape, size, cost, brand, retail store, with a box over here, they're going to work together, and. I think that's a really, really important. Uh, it, it, it's going to uh, take a lot of the intimidation out of uh, the technology of what we do out of the customer's mind. Yeah, I agree that that confidence of knowing that I can get these multiple different things and they're all going to communicate and work together is uh, is powerful. Not just from confidence standpoint of buying the thing, but in in terms of of um, You know the flexibility of, of not being locked into the first thing you get, and and knowing that multiple brands um, are are supported, so I don't have to worry about whatever the brand is on the box I'm buying. Even if that company were to decide to get out of the race or or just become unavailable, I, I I'm I'm not um, I'm not I'm not stuck with something that won't work any longer. Your your home didn't just become obsolete. Right. Exactly. So 
let me ask, you know, what was it like to work with Apple on this and, and how did that relationship go? Uh, it's been fantastic. Uh, I, we, we had not, uh, and it wasn't for lack of trying, but we hadn't until the last couple of years, we hadn't had a lot of interaction with the folks at Apple. Um, uh, we, we have felt very well supported from, uh, from the leadership uh, behind the HomeKit uh, platform. Uh, I think it's well known that Apple isn't always the most communicative uh, company when it comes to B2B uh, work, but I can tell you that they're decisive and, and supportive. And uh, so, you know, it, not surprisingly, there were changes in the the specification as time went along, but you know that that's just absolutely par for the course, and 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 HomeKit wouldn't be as good as it is without it. So um, all in all, it's been a really really great experience. We 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 feel like um, it's just beginning. You know, now that it's really live, uh, you know, now instead of uh, you know us marketers and us engineers deciding what it should be. Now consumers will start weighing in, and 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 you know that that's where our heritage is, and so I'm very very excited to be to be live with it now. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I'm anticipating, I'm I'm predicting, and I could be going out on a limb here, is that the availability of HomeKit increases the number of users that decide that they're going to buy a product like this. Um, I think almost exponentially. I I I couldn't agree more. Uh, the, the, if, if I'm an outsider looking into this space, and most people are, um, the fact that uh, you know one of the greatest companies on earth is in this space has invested in uh, launching this, it, it just gives me a confidence that this this category is is for real, and the fact that they say this stuff works together, I know it'll work together. So one of the things that's held me back personally as a consumer has been the initial cost and just simply knowing what to get as a first product. What what do I get as a starter kit? What do I do first? And how much is it going to set me back? So now that, that we have these HomeKit compatible products, what do you think the first thing that someone who doesn't have any of these things in the house has uh, should should get, but does have an iPhone and does have, say, an Apple TV. Yeah. So the the, the two products that are shipping today that are uh, HomeKit compatible are hubs from Insteon and Lutron, and uh, and Lutron's a great company, and and t- I mean they're the leader in, in remote lighting control, um, and so that's where people can begin. And even if the first two products were out were, um, I don't know, bark stoppers, I would tell you lighting control. That's where most people start in the space. It's very easy to understand. It's totally, um, you know, we all have lighting in our house. We all have light switches and we all enjoy automation and remote control of it. And once you've got it, you almost can't imagine not having it. And so the best place to start is either a plug-in lamp um, or a screw-in remote control bulb. Uh, I think the plug-in lamp is probably the, the best and, and the, uh, certainly the one that's been around the longest. So a couple of plug-in dimmer modules and, and a bridge, and you're off and running. 
And what happens is people start having, you know, really aha moments about uh, devices that are in their house that they don't use because the control is uh, just not convenient enough. My mom had a china cabinet that had a beautiful lighting inside, but the had a little cord switch on it that, of course, you couldn't even reach. So those lights were never on. I just plug it into a little module, and 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 now you can control it from your phone or, or Siri or tabletop remote or handheld remote or wiring remote, right? And that that's when it gets really fun is when you start seeing how this impacts your life in a in a positive way, and you start adding. Uh, more products and more types of products. Cool. Now, I'm a fan of the uh, the connected thermostat. I have the Nest, I have the Echo B, and I, I like these things because my experience is, is that I get kicked in the middle of the night saying it's too hot or it's too cold to go turn it down, and instead of going downstairs to adjust the temperature, I'm now using the phone as the controller for that. Now, you, you mentioned that Insteon is a part of the Works with Nest program. Can you tell me a little bit about what kind of interactions that I would get from doing that? Well, um, so if you use our apps and, and you use, you know, even if it's everything else in your house is Instan, you can install a Nest thermostat and, and control it within our app paradigm. Likewise, um, we will be working with Nest on their, uh, uh, they've got several uh, business efforts that because we have products that that no one else has and because our, our, our communication technology is uber reliable um, customers that join in uh, ways to save uh, monthly electricity costs by uh, allowing the utility to turn off you know let's say your pool mm -hmm. pump or your water heater uh, during high high demand times um, you know we'll be working with them to bring those products uh, into consumers hands most of those will be uh, non-retail you know, installed, uh, sold through the utility company kind of you, thing. You, right, right, or or similar, other trades as well. Um, so we, you know, we're we're kind of working uh, with them on both sides, kind of on the retail side that uh, you can you can use Insteon stuff and Nest stuff in the same house, same app UI, and then uh, on on the installed uh, basis as well going forward. This, this brings me to a different question that I hadn't anticipated asking. Um, so if I have Nest and I have Insteon products, the bridge and a, a couple of lighting solutions, can I control Nest through the Insteon app? And if I can, can I control the Nest through HomeKit? Um, great questions. Yes to the first question. You can control the Nest thermostat through the Insteon app. Nest is uh, as so five companies announced products more or less at launch. Uh, the ourselves and Lutron were the only products that were shipping at launch. Echo B is one of the other three, mm -hmm. um, but Nest isn't one of the remaining two. Uh, and so, uh, all I can tell you is that, that they have not announced uh, becoming uh, HomeKit compatible. Doesn't mean that they won't be. Mm -hmm. I'm not asking you to speak for them. I was just wondering if there was a way that I could control them because you work with them in you know, a sort of backdoor. <laughs> yeah. So um, there, it, today the answer is no. Okay. 
It doesn't mean that that won't change because, you know, as, as I mentioned, we're just getting sure. uh, off the tarmac here. Um, but today, today we can't. That's, that's a fine answer. I understand it completely. Okay. You know, I, I am asking you, you know, what, two days after the announcement's been made? So. Yeah. It's a pretty exciting time. Um, wow. You know, I, I'm so glad that you've been able to take the time to spend with me on this and, and talk about HomeKit and talk about working with Apple. Um, what, what would you like to leave our listener with? What should our listener understand from from you about HomeKit, about Instion, and about where things are going and what, what they should pay attention to? Well, I, I think uh, just what's, what's possible, right? It's really exciting that uh, if it's in your house, you're, you can either control it today or in the near future. And the tech giants uh, like Apple are throwing their weight and, you know, and their uh, abilities into the ring, which I feel confident means that the user experiences starting two days ago, but even more importantly, two years from now, are just going to get better and better. And that's... Uh, this this last mile for us as a company is 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 bringing together user experiences that uh, wives and aunts and uncles and grandmothers enjoy every bit as much as uh, the early adopters, uh, and and so I just that's you know people like Apple that's what they do, and so uh, we're just really thrilled to be part of this very exciting launch. And uh, and equally excited about where it's going to go from here because uh, I'm just I'm I'm quite confident they they will work hard and smart to build an ever uh, more wonderful experience. So it's really really exciting time. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this has uh, been Joe Data with the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host Victor Marks and. Thank you for listening. Please uh, leave a positive review on iTunes and tell your friends. Thanks, Victor.